Bible to Isaiah 43. And over in Isaiah 43, I want to read a couple of verses as we kind of lay the foundation for this. The first verse I want to read is verse 25 in Isaiah 43. And after I read that verse, I'll go back to the first two verses and read those. But Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. And if we go now to verse 1 and 2, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When you walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Now, Isaiah was a prophet whose ministry was in the 8th century before Jesus was born. And his book is so popular in the New Testament that a lot of 1st century and 2nd century writers called Isaiah the Old Testament Gospel. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to some of the quotations from the Old Testament that are in the New, but Isaiah is cited frequently because people loved that book. In regard to the nation of Israel, you can see where the Lord has told them in verse 1 that he's the one that made them, created them, and formed them, and he even redeemed them. Now, what does it mean to redeem? That means to buy something back. And the R-E on that has to do with something taking place again. It has already occurred, but there has to be some form of redemption. And they had to be redeemed because of the fact that sin came into this world through Adam and Eve's transgression and marred all of God's human creation. But in Isaiah 43:25, we learn that God blocks out our transgressions. What is the transgression then? That is when we disobey God and pass on to territory that we're not supposed to be on. You've also heard the word trespass. Some of you have seen signs that say no trespassing. That means this is my property. You're not welcome here unless you've been invited to come. You're not supposed to just come walking back and forth. And whenever a person enters into arenas they're not supposed to be in and does things that God has told them not to do, that becomes a transgression or a trespass. So the scripture in verse 25 is pretty clear that the Lord, he's the one that blocks them out. To block a sin out would not be easy, but the word is important. In the book of Revelation, you probably read the verse that says, He that overcomes, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. So if he says that, and he's not teasing us, and he's not saying something just to be emotional, then the reverse of that is true. If you don't overcome, I will blot your name out. Ancient inscriptions that have been uncovered through the centuries if they've been inscribed in stone or rock, it's not easy to, um, you know, redo it once it's been inscribed. You understand, if you've got a writer who chisels something in stone, if they're bad at spelling, 
That's just going to be a pretty bad inscription. It's like someone who goes to a tattoo artist and then a tattooer can't spell. I've seen that on one or two occasions where somebody have a Latin word written on their arm and they don't even know that the Latin word is misspelled. And I don't even have the heart to, to tell them because I'm sure nobody knew, so there's just no sense in bringing it up anyhow. But in ancient times, if you had an inscription that was in rock, they had a form of sandpaper, and if a letter was wrong or word was wrong, then they take that sandpaper and they just scrub until they take it all the way down to where the indentation disappears. So, of course, you can understand there would be a depression in the rock now by a couple of centimeters because of the fact they're having to do all of this scrubbing. Well, once the scrubbing is done, they can chisel again. So when, when God is talking about our transgressions, saying that he'll block them out, he's making it very plain that he'll erase them so that it'll look like they've never been there. Now, all of us have sinned. All of us have done wrong. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But it's a beautiful thing to know that our sins can be dealt with by someone who has the ability to deal with them. I can't do anything about your sins. You can't do anything about mine. But when we put everything in the hands of God, that is when the blessing comes. Now go to the next chapter and notice what it says in Isaiah 44, verse 22. The Lord again says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. A thick cloud, what, what would that mean? Well, a thick cloud obscures a person's vision. And for you that have driven in the fall, and certainly on uh, some summer days when you get some cold and warm air that's coming together, you know that the fog can keep you from seeing clearly. And if I were to ask, has anybody ever entered into some fog where you couldn't see six feet ahead of you? we'd all probably have to say yes. I remember one time we were coming back from Cleveland, and we left early in the morning, maybe about 4.30 or so in the morning, got on the highway, and so I told Tiffany I'd drive to get out of the city. She doesn't like to drive in the cities. And so I got us out of the city, and no sooner I got out of the city and we switched and I laid back to go to sleep, we hit all of this fog, you know. And, of course, again, uh, fog without any kind of light, it's dark. You can't see a thing. When the Lord says in Isaiah 44, verse 22, I blotted out your sins like a thick cloud, what he's saying is, is just like a fog or cloud cover that comes in and obscures a person's vision, I'll make it so that your transgressions are gone and you won't be able to see them anymore. They'll no longer be visible to you. And this is what we all want. No one wants to be reminded of their sins over and over again. There's a, there's a message that I preach from time to time. I don't think I've preached it probably in 20 years. But there's a verse in Psalm 51 that says, My sin is ever before me. That's after David had committed adultery and got caught. So sometimes I'll preach a message entitled, The Problem of the Present Past. You know, you just can't get rid of yesterday. Just everywhere you go, you keep seeing what happened in your past. You saw what happened last night. You saw what happened five years ago. 
The Lord comes along and says he's going to blot out our transgressions so that like a thick cloud we won't be able to see them anymore. And I think for any of us, if we, if we can live this Christian life without constantly being reminded of our sins, don't you think that would be a pretty good Christian life? Yeah. I think one of the reasons we struggle with condemnation, guilt, and shame so much is because we see our sin. And we need God to obscure our vision or to give us a better vision to see his righteousness and his redemption. So the redeeming power of the Lord comes along and he pulls us out of the gutter, out of sin, into righteousness and into a, a, clean, a clean estate and a clean status with him. Now, let's go over now to Matthew chapter 26, and I want to work on this this word related to communion. We all understand that as believers, we share in the body and the blood of the Lord together, but just want to give us some other insight. Matthew 26, notice what it says in verse 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak of a covenant to come. They talk about a covenant that will come that essentially will be better than the one that we have. And Hebrews spoke about this covenant being so much better than the old covenant. Because the author, Paul, said if the first covenant had been without fault, there would have been no need for a new covenant or for a second covenant. But the blood is important because the wine or grape juice that we use and the bread are emblems. That means they typify the blood of Jesus and his broken body. We, we are not like the Catholics who believe that because a preacher says the formula over the bread and the wine, that it is instantly transformed into the literal body and the blood. Absolutely not. We've got to understand that Jesus spoke figuratively, and when the Lord said, I am the vine, you're the branches, he was not saying that we are vegetation. And when he said, I am the door, of the sheepfold. He was not saying that he's something that swings on hinges. But there's symbolic language. But many people missed it. And that's why in John chapter 6, when he was talking to his disciples, he said this to them. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And then the disciples turned around. Some of them started walking away because they said, oh my goodness, I don't know what kind of cult we can get mixed up in. What kind of carnivorous thing is this? Well, later on, Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples, he said, are you going to leave also? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sitting here with his disciples in Matthew 26, 28, when he takes that cup, having given thanks in verse 27, and showing gratitude to God, he hands that to them, and he says, drink all of it. Now, they likely had one large cup or goblet that they passed around. I, I, I just don't know how many of you would want to do that. Well, I don't know if any of you have even been in services like that. I've been overseas in services in the house church, and one time when I was in an Assyrian church, 
and they brought all the people down in the Assyrian church to the altar, and there were a lot of people, a lot of people, and they pulled out this silver chalice, and that preacher poured some stuff in there, and then there was something with the bread. There was one single loaf, and they passed it around. Everybody had to pinch a piece off, you know, and and then you ate it, and you just passed it along. So just everybody's fingers just going on that one loaf as they're squeezing that and tasting it. Well, when it came to the, uh, the chalice they were passing around, by the time we got that far, I was done. I was done. Because, of course, it, it's a fairly big cup, but you've got a whole lot of people, and you know how it goes. They They hand it to somebody, then they take it, and they put it to their lips, and then they take the sip, then they pass it to the next person, and then the next person turns it about a quarter of an inch in order to put their lip prints in a different spot. And then they take it. Well, you know, you keep going around. Pretty soon you've got enough people there's nowhere to put your lips. And that's what happened when they got around to where, to where I was. And it certainly didn't help when I was watching the little kids that had the wet little lips and everything sticking to it. I go, oh, I just believe I'll take communion when I get home. Well, in this verse, when the Lord says to them, drink ye all of it, that's what they did, typifying their relationship with Jesus. But in verse 28, we know that the blood that we were partaking of is emblematic of what handles our sins. One drop brings remission. And what is the word remission and how can we define it? Well, it comes from Latin, and it's a good translation of the Greek, and it means to send away. That's what it means, to send away. And it can be defined variously. First of all, we can say it is the canceling of a debt. So because of our sins, the Lord comes along and we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that debt is canceled and we don't owe God anymore. It can also mean that you have within your ability to refrain from imposing a specific penalty upon people because of the debt they owe you. So even though you don't cancel it, you just essentially say you don't owe it at this time. But then the other form of remission is to be able to take a debt that you owe and transfer it to another authority who is properly and able to handle it himself or herself. So the scripture says that this is the blood that was shed for many for the remission of sin. All of it's covered. It makes it very plain that our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities, our trespasses, we couldn't handle, but God has the authority and he did it himself. He forgave us. And it's a, it's a miraculous thing. It's true whenever you hear people sing that old song that says, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. It's true. It's really true. As Christians then, because of the shedding of the blood and the remission of sins, now that I know my sins are remitted, and they're gone, the consequences of those sins have also been dealt with. What are the things that come along with sin? Fear, guilt, condemnation, 
shame. You'll find those four things. Because if we haven't done what we're supposed to do, we're fearful about being in the presence of God. And this is why a lot of people don't, don't enjoy church. People who live in sin, they don't enjoy going to church. Sometimes they don't enjoy hanging out with their family because they know that when they get around their family, their family is living for God. They're going to be under conviction the moment they come into their presence, so they'd rather be somewhere else, and they're somewhat wary about that. But then also there's the condemnation, the weight of all of that. I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I know that how I'm living is wrong. I know that these aspects of my life that my family and friends can see is wrong. But the blood comes along and cleanses us so that we can be free. And I'm telling you, when you're forgiven by God, you're entirely forgiven. I think a lot of physical sickness in people's life could be dealt with if they understood that they were forgiven. And I've seen plenty of people who come to church with the weight of the world on their shoulders and can't even tell you the kind of iniquity that they've been involved with. But, you know, when they finally pray through to God and find the deliverance that they need, godly sorrow, working repentance, not to be repented of, and there's weeping and things like that, very often you'll see people get up and they're shaking and they're trembling and all of that, but now it feels like they've taken a bath on the inside. The whole world is different now because where they labored under the burden of shame, guilt, and all of that, it's gone. It's gone. Instantly, it's gone. And the beautiful thing about that is that when that load is lifted from your shoulders, you can enjoy life a whole lot better. Yeah. And a lot of people don't enjoy life because of that. Let's, let's go over to First John. And let me show you something from over there. Over in 1 John and chapter 1, and let's look at verse number 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So our best fellowship is going to be in the light of who Jesus is. 1 John 1, verse number 7. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So the Lord likes to clean, and he likes to cleanse. And since our bodies are his temples, he knows exactly how he wants the temples to be cleaned. Now, all of us are different when it comes to how we handle things and how we clean things. We all dust in a different way, we organize in a different way. But when it comes to God and his temple, he cleanses everybody the same. Everybody starts off at square one. Everyone is as clean as a newborn baby. Everyone has their sins washed away in white. And verse 7 makes it very plain. It is the blood that cleanses. That's the miracle of it. How can blood cleanse? You know as well as I do, if you get blood on just about any article of clothing, it's hard to get it out. But according to the Scripture, then, blood is something that cleanses, it changes, it purifies. In fact, we're justified by it, as it says in the book of Romans. But notice verse number 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession has to be made. The scripture says, 
unless we, or it says, He that confesseth and forsaketh his sin shall find what? Mercy. If we don't confess it, if we don't forsake it, we don't find the mercy. Well, the Scripture acknowledges we have to confess our sins. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's already told us in the first few verses that what, that which is able to be handled and seen and touched, talking about Jesus, that we've all experienced him in the fullness of this wonderful relationship and in bodily fellowship, and now they move to the area of what it means to be cleansed. So here's the issue then. If you are a Christian, can a Christian sin? Well, yes. We know that when we're in, before we became Christian, in our B.C. days, we lived in darkness. All of the works of our hands were as filthy rags in the presence of the Lord. What can you do with filthy rags? Nothing, hardly at all. You certainly don't want to clean with them. You can wash them, and then, you know, you've seen some of those that are so filthy that you have to wash them three or four times, and even then you sometimes don't want to use them. But if we laid them all at the feet of Jesus, he would be able to take them and cleanse them because that's exactly what we are. We came to him unclean, and he took us and cleaned us up. When the Lord formed Israel, they were like a lump of clay, to use Jeremiah's analogy of the potter. And when he made them, he made them in the beginning, they were perfect in his eyes, just like Adam and Eve. However, Israel chose to turn away from the commandments of God and move into sin. And when they did that, the scripture says the clay became marred in the hands of the potter. So what does the potter do? Does he throw the clay away? No. He holds on to the clay. He, he remakes it. He remolds it. He adds a little bit here, takes a little bit away from there, takes a sharp instrument. He starts shaving off stuff here, adds a little water to it to make it a little bit more pliable. Pretty soon he gets it up there on that wheel. He starts pumping that wheel. And as it's turning, then he's able to create what he's already conceived in his mind. So before there ever was a blood sacrifice, from Moses' time coming on up to Jesus before there ever was an animal like a dove or a bullock or a goat that had to die, God had already conceived in his mind that the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world in the fullness of times would come into this world to deal with our sins. And I can't even count how many animals were sacrificed from the time of Cain and Abel and Seth until the time of Christ. One time I tried to calculate, but I just stopped doing it because I knew there's no way I was ever going to even get in the right ballpark. Because at every feast, they sacrificed thousands of animals. But think of how much blood was shed for Israel's sins. But there never was an animal sacrifice. And the blood that went up toward heaven in the nostrils of God never was an animal sacrifice for the sins of the Hittites or the sins of the Canaanites. That smoke that arose in the presence of God was strictly for the iniquities of the children of Israel. They had a covenant with God. And since we have a covenant with God, that too means that we can have our sins remitted. And once those sins are dealt with in the cross through Jesus Christ, our past it's just that. It's in the past. Leave it there. And don't let people bring it back up and throw it in your face. Leave it there in the past. 
And as you go on with God, if you do sin, verse 9 says, we confess it because he's faithful. He's full of faith, full of trust, full of confidence. He believes that the blood of Jesus still works. God does. He's full of faith. He believes that he's able to cleanse you. So there's no sin that you know of that God can't handle other than blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But the people that you think of in this world who are the worst wretches on planet Earth that are deserving of hell and all of that kind of a thing, God looks at that person and he wants us to know Jesus died for him or her too. Yeah, there's nothing about us that makes us so absolutely wonderful. And maybe if God would have pulled back the cover on our own individual lives, we'd probably be shocked at what we would see amongst all of us, you see, what we're thinking sometimes, if God would have revealed that. So verse 9 again, faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why is forgiveness essential? Well, this, this thing is horizontal and it's vertical. The scripture says if, if I don't forgive Chris, then he won't forgive me. So this affects how I'm going to interact with, with everybody down here. And if, if you're like me and you don't always have the best long-term memory, that's a good thing. Because you can't hold a lot of grudges if you can't remember stuff people said and did to you 10 years ago. I mean, that, that's actually a good thing sometimes. But, but if, if, if I can learn to forgive people what they do to me, what they've said to me, then I don't have to have a problem at all in my vertical relationship with God. But Peter says, if I don't dwell with her, my wife, according to the knowledge of God, my prayers are hindered. Yeah, hindered. So husbands have a responsibility to live in accordance uh, to of the light, in accordance to the light that they possess when it comes to, to the Word of God. And if he's faithful and just to forgive us, he takes it even further and he cleanses us from unrighteousness because sin produces unrighteous people. Unrighteous people are guilty people. Guilty people feel like they're unclean. They don't want to be around a lot of people. And this is why, with the, the number of sins that we have in the world today, you'll see why sometimes people don't want to be around Christians. Don't take it personal. It's not just that, you know, they, they, they'll claim that you might be self-righteous or arrogant. It may not be that at all. There's something in you called light. There's something in them called darkness. And when they come into your presence, they instantly feel bad. Yeah. You walk into a room sometimes and people kind of drop their head when they come in because when you look at them, they feel like you're looking directly through them. As if you see things about their life that they don't want other people to see. You shake the hand of somebody and you look them in the face and speak with them. And you, you know there are a lot of people, uh, sinners in particular, they won't look you in the face sometimes. They're looking at the floor, they're looking at the wall, they're looking in different directions. That's how I was when I went to church chasing after that little girl as a little boy. I sat there in that pew, and that preacher preached, and I didn't look at him at all. My eyes were roaming all over the place, but I was listening to everything he said. And I came under conviction while he was preaching, and then I went home and became a Christian when I got on my knees and read the Bible that we had there in the house. So I felt instantly like I was different 
Me, my life had changed. You see, that, that's how it begins. Well, notice in First John two, verse number, verse number one. He says, "My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not." See, we're, we're not to practice sin. We're not to make sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, what's an advocate? A lawyer, mediator, intercessor, an attorney. It's it's interesting that this advocate in, in verse one is described as righteous. There are probably not too many of us in here that would use that word to describe lawyers that we know. But that is what the Bible says. So Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. And when we're in a difficulty or in a jam, we have an advocate over here that's pleading our case, and he's talking to the Heavenly Father and saying, this is one of mine. That's what intercession is all about. A, a judge is listening because there is a defendant, and then there is the one who is going to be, you know, prosecuted. they got accusations that are there. And so the prosecution, they're coming along and they're alleging this is what so-and-so did. This is what this particular person did. Well, the defendant's attorney is going to get up and he's basically going to defend the character of his witness, oftentimes by impeaching the character of the individual who are bringing the charges. Well, you know who the accuser of the brethren is, the devil. So with somebody as slick and as crafty and as conniving as he is, it's better for us that we're, we're not our own attorney. Didn't we hear one time where somebody said that uh, the man who has himself or his own attorney has a fool for a client? Yeah. But the one who has Christ for their attorney is a wise person. There's no doubt about it at all. He, he knows everything about the circumstances of your case. He knows everything about what you're facing. He knows about the charges, and he definitely knows about the schemes of that prosecuting counsel who's coming against you and saying all kinds of things against you. And with him on your side, you can't go wrong. Yeah, he, he, He's good. I think of this this uh, dream that a, a pastor had many years ago. He pastored down in Oklahoma, and this gentleman... He was sitting up in the pulpit Sunday night service, and he was, I think, getting ready to preach. And uh, he was sitting in the chair up in the pulpit, and he slumped over. And so, of course, the people saw him kind of slump over, and a couple of people ran up there and caught him before he hit the floor. And the lady in the church who was a nurse said, if you've got any sense around here, we better call the ambulance and get him taken away so he can be looked at. This man obviously is having some kind of cardiac arrest or maybe a stroke or something. Well, the ambulance came, and his wife uh, there with him, and he said when he was in that ambulance, they're taking him to that hospital, but he said he was unconscious. And while he was unconscious, he said it was like there was a long, dark corridor and at the end of that corridor, there was a, a door and said around the edges of that door, he could see a bright light coming through. But he said he was a long way from it. He said he, it was like a, a power or something that would push him towards that door and he'd go so far, then he'd stop. Then he'd start going back. And then he said he opened up his eyes. He'd be in that ambulance 
and, and, and then and then finally he said that kept happening and then on about the third or fourth time he said that force propelled him towards that door and the door opened and he found himself in this room with all of this light and he said when he looked up he said there was like a, a, a bar or, or judgment seat where a judge was sitting and he said then over here there was like an embankment of a bunch of angels in these all these beautiful uh, clothes that were shiny and glistening and he said when he got there and he's he's looking up there and in his heart since this was like a dream or vision he said he knew that that was God up there on the bench. He said he couldn't see anything about a face or anything, just a big, huge, radiating mass of glory. And he said out of that, he heard a voice that said to him, J.E., what are you doing here? And, and he he said, well, Lord, I, I don't know. He said, I, I think maybe I had a stroke or or something like that. And then he said that voice spoke and said, is there an accusation? And he said, then off from one of the sides appears this this being with a long black dark cloak, couldn't even see its face, and the thing was covered. And he said he walked up, and he said he opened up this book, and he said he started reading the most hideous kinds of sins you could ever, uh, you know, allege that any human being ever did. And he said he was just reading them off in the presence of God. And the man was thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I haven't done any of these things, but he's, he's saying I've done them. And then he said that voice, the Lord spoke from that bench and said again, is there a further accusation? Then he said that same being pulled out another book. And he said except this book was a little smaller. And he said he started reading from that book, but everything he read out of this book that I was alleged to have done, I actually did. And he said the problem with it, he said that everything that was written, he realized he had never asked God to forgive him. He had never repented over it. And all of that in the presence of God seemed so weighty and was so burdensome to him. And he said he was trembling. He said that the Lord spoke again to him and said, J.E., how do you plead? And he didn't know what to say. He knew if he pled guilty, he could very possibly seal his fate in eternal flames. And he said if he pled innocent, he knew he'd be lying. So he said the only thing in that vision he knew to do was to fall down on his knees and cry out, Oh God, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. And he said, out from the corner, from the side, came the, the risen Son of God dressed in a beautiful white robe and came and knelt down beside him and put his arm around him and said, Father, this one belongs to me. My blood has availed for him. Then he said he woke up. He was in the hospital, and he was healed. Think of that. See? And he was in the hospital, and he was healed. Went home. Folks, it's better to have Christ as our attorney than ourselves. He knows what to say when we don't know what to say. Now, the last thing I'll tell you is in 1 John 2 and 2, it says regarding Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Propitiation, what is that? That has to do 
with taking the wrath of God and setting it aside. That's what Jesus did. Jesus covered us with his blood so that the wrath of God no longer targets us who have a covenant with him. God's not angry, mad at Christians. I know the Bible says God's angry with the sinner every day. His bow is bent towards their destruction. I hear the voices of people on television telling telling sinners God's not angry with them and God's not disappointed in them. I just listen to that, don't pay it any mind at all. All of that applies to me. God's not angry at me because I have a covenant with him. But the one that doesn't have a covenant with God and says that God doesn't exist and, and, and shakes their fists in God's face and thumbs their nose at God, God's not pleased with that at all. If you don't believe me, read Thessalonians. Read the book of Revelation. You'll see that. However, Jesus made intercession and mediation for our sins. He died for us but not just for us, for the whole world. When Jesus was up there on that cross, you remember he died between two thieves. Let's never forget the conversations that took place up there on that hill. He's hanging there, excruciating pain, agony. There's a man over here, and he's saying, if you're the Son of God, why don't you do something to get us down from here? I mean, really? I mean, how long are you going to let us hang up here? We've, we've heard about all these miracles you've done. And then there's another gentleman over here, and that gentleman is saying, look, we deserve to be up here because we're, we're sinful. But this man has done nothing. And then the man on this side, he says to Jesus, listen to these words, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. So he obviously knew Jesus had a kingdom, and he's up there on that cross, and he's thinking about an afterlife. And this man has quickly or in a few hours up there next to Christ has had his conversion moment. How do I know? Because Jesus said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. And last time I checked, sinners don't go to heaven. But he said, this day you'll be with me. So whatever you did that put you on the cross, I've forgiven. The Father has forgiven and all the people who were at home who maybe didn't come to see this man's uh, capital punishment but stayed at home because they knew he was going to be crucified, they were glad, they were happy. They said he's getting exactly what he deserved. He shouldn't have stole our sheep or whatever he did. And, and while they're at home saying all of that, they have no idea about this secret, quiet conversation taking place that says he's going to heaven now. But the other one on the other side never changed in his opinion. So here you got two people or three people up there on that hill. You got Christ in the center, a thief on this side, a thief on this side. This thief over here converted. He died to his sin. You got this man over here that was rebellious and stubborn. He died in his sin. But then you've got our Savior right in the middle. He died for our sin. He died for our sin. And when we understand that the death of Jesus wasn't just for Christians, despite what Calvinists and predestinationists say, but for the sins of the whole world, you can understand why this is good news. And Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Proclaim it. Announce it. He didn't even say explain it. He just said announce it, shout it. Let everybody know what I've done on Calvary's hill. And for us that are Christian, that's good news. Because I realize that all of the clutches of iniquity that once held on to me like tentacles, 
that Jesus came with the power of the cross. He cut all of those, severed my life from all of that, and gave me an opportunity to start all over again. And if and when I sin, and I will, and we do, we have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. And if Jesus can be so forgiving, and if Jesus can be so merciful and compassionate, can't we? Yeah, can't we? That's the only way Christianity works, folks. We, we, we put the king first, and God does the rest for us. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, and let's talk a little bit. Father, we love you. We thank you. As we look into the Scriptures, we know that the blood of Jesus is powerful, that one drop is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago when it was shed on that hill. So we pray you continue to lead and guide us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, 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 amen.